Bernard blew me away in this interview. He's a role model of mine, and I knew it was going to be a fantastic interview. His cultural perspective, combined with so many years of experience, makes him an amazing guest and an amazing person, to be honest. You have to excuse some of the parts where I'm speechless or nervous, because Mark is the real deal. We didn't follow an outline or script in this episode, we just got right into it, and I, and I appreciate that about him. We talked about the modern ad school system in America, breaking into strategy, the types of strategies out there, side hustles and burnout, informational interviews and how to reach out to people, and his thoughts, takeaways, and advice from his career. Man, there is some good stuff in here, and I'm so excited for you guys to listen, but also, be sure to reach out to him. You can listen to his podcast he hosts. It's called Sweathead. You probably know it. It's got like 500,000 plus listens. You should buy his new book out just now called Strategy is Your Words. And go follow him on LinkedIn and all social media. Uh, if you want to find those links, you have to go to our Instagram, at EnteringAd, to find those. Uh, and they're all there, and they're excellent resources that I highly recommend. So... Without further ado, this is the Breaking and Entering Podcast, and I am your accomplice, Gino Schellenberger. Kick it, Mikey. Mark Pollard, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Breaking and Entering Podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today. Gino Schellenberger, or should I call you Gino Schellenberger? I'm that sure sounds that's pretty right. good. I'll just go early with the nicknames, and I've been talking a bit about that with people recently. And the thing about your first name is it is already an Australian nickname because we often shorten the name and then add an O onto it. So Gino, perfect hmm. Australian nickname. I wonder I, if your parents knew that when they gave it to you. No, they. I don't. It's actually short. It is a nickname actually for Gennaro. Gennaro is my full name, Italian. Mm-hmm. That's, so a, you would that's be... a lot, Gennaro Schellenberger. You got a lot of influence, a lot of European influence in in those letters there. When I was younger, I was terrified of going, of learning how to spell Schellenberger, which is fourteen letters. And it's a lot. Like, it's a lot. Yeah. yeah well, I, uh, you know, I'm excited to have you on. Have you on? And would you be Marco? How would? That... Would that be no, like uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm such a an independent spirit. That no nicknames are really stuck with me. I've had things like Marco Polo. I've had Marky Mark. I've had Marcus Aurelius. I've had Marcus. You know, there's there's not a lot that really sticks. But I, I go early with a nickname, so I was a bit disappointed to well, see that your first name is a nickname. Did I feel like different friend groups have different nicknames or different people you're surrounded by spheres that might have different names for you? Is that true in your case? Sort of, but I always move between groups. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've also been in the same relationship for 20 plus years. So I'm not out there. I wasn't out there in my 20s, like making a ton of new friends, except through like the music industry that I was a part of. But yeah, no, no, my name, maybe Polly. There's a few, but they don't really stick. You could do a Shelly with yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shelly is one. Do you, know, you get that? Yeah, I get G Shelly. That's a big one. There you go. Well, cool. Um yeah, I mean, I want to talk advertising with you. Um, like I said before, uh, talking to all my friends and seeing, you know, being a follower of your podcast, you know, you were just responding to a simple, do you want to come on my show? And you saying yes was uh, quite fantastic. And, you know, it's kind of, I, I think it's kind of amazing nowadays, uh, 
the willingness people have to show up on these types of things or just have these conversations as students, mm -hmm. we could be intimidated by reaching out to high profile, high profile people like yourself. So I was just shocked when you said that you'd be willing to come on. Yeah, well, it's, it's there's a couple of things. I definitely relate to the, I think it's a fact or the thought that it's uh, a little easier than ever to get people who are out on the internet. I don't know if I'm high profile. Uh, I just, I just have, uh, I'm an introvert with social needs. So that's what the podcast and a lot of my writing is actually about seeking validation through words and ideas. And, uh, you know, otherwise I'm, I'm relatively a distant character, but I grew up on the internet. I've been doing the internet since I was a teenager and the thing that I loved about it is that you could get access to people that you'd never get access to elsewhere. And for me, it was like the mid to late nineties. I started, I started making websites about rap, like underground rap. And then I took over a hip hop radio show and I was interviewing people like ice cube and flavor flavor at a really young age. That's and so part cool. of it was, was because of the phone, but also people assumed that I was five or 10 years older. And cause I have a deep mumbly voice, they also would have kept assuming that I was older than I was, but I was doing stuff at the age of 19 or, tw or 20 because of the internet. And so I, I think it's, you know, for me, it's not even like, should I do this? It's just, if you can make yourself available and someone's interested, why wouldn't you? That's right. And I, you know, I, I that's why I kind of stress to all of the listeners out there is that, you know, all it takes is to reach out in some way, whether it's email or LinkedIn and the worst that can happen really in my situation is they don't respond yeah. and nobody ever says yeah, no. Know. It's just like, they don't no, know. No, I, I, and I get, I, most, most people respond to me these days when I reach out, but I also wanted to mention that I do think the advertising industry itself, it was, and it's generally pretty cutthroat. It's pretty competitive and sometimes elitist. And sometimes that elitism is actually built in because in some countries, the advertising industry has been formed mostly by people in the upper middle class and sometimes the upper class. That's simplistic, but that, that exists. And so there can be a certain arrogance within parts of the world, but that's been shifting. And so I've also had a similar response as perhaps the one that you've had to me chatting with you, which is weird for me to discuss, but where, especially with like really high profile English people in advertising, where they're happy to have a chat and we get into like their childhood or mental health challenges. And I'm like, wow, there's no way they would have done that 10 years ago because the main media or the main way that people expressed was either really in blogs. So there was this little blogosphere of people in advertising, largely planners talking mm -hmm. about planning, right? Sure. Or it was the traditional trade press, which was very PR controlled. So there's definitely been a shift and an, yeah. an eagerness and an, and an openness to being honest and, um, and helpful. It's been great to see. And do you think that's been accelerated due to the pandemic even more so? Oh, that's, that's a difficult one to, I think there's a certain ferocity, desperation and anger and resentment and panic out there, but that's also like mirrored, mirrored might, might not be the right word, but the opposite of that is like, there are also people doing really well right now. And so that can cause some conflict. So in some respects, I think because of the pandemic, because people are having to wake up and see themselves in the mirror in the day, every day, and they might not see many other people that they're might be a certain wrestle with like what's true and how do I put that out into the world and at the same time a ton of people are lost right now and they're not sure what they're allowed to feel and think and then others are doing really well so I don't know if it's any more 
than before. You know, I, I know personally that I've I've been pretty productive. I tried to stay pretty productive. It's a dangerous word, that word productive, but I've, I've been pretty productive through the pandemic because it's it helps me with my own mental health, honestly. And I've got a family to feed. Um, but That helps too. To but also, it. yeah, well, it's a, both of those things, are, you know, you got to pay attention to them at some point. Uh, so, but um, also... But also, like, I've had days and weeks where I've just felt pretty listless and like, oh, I don't know, should I really put anything out right now? Who needs it? The so what keeps crazy. you going at those, those days? Like, I've had with the, just this podcast and it's a you know, much smaller scale than what you're up to. You know, what what pushes you on those days when you wake up and you're like, I don't really want to do this interview or I don't really want to, you know, put this content out there. What do you say to you know, yourself I mean, some, in that so, moment? Well, so, first of all, sometimes I don't. I cut myself some slack take some time off sometimes i get sick of myself you know if there was a period there where i was making daily strategy classes i made 100 from a book that i'd written that's 400 pages and i would be reading parts of the book out or making new like audio or vocalized video material based on the book while doing interviews for the podcast or doing live sessions in sweathead and i'll be like dude i think we've had enough of you today so just stop uh, but really, over the years, it's that I've I've connected what I do right now to who I am. I, I do what I do because I need to do it. And when someone asks about running a podcast or starting a magazine or writing a book or whatever they want to do, let's say someone in the industry wants to be more active on LinkedIn, do it because you have a need to express. If you don't have a need to express, it's not going to last and you will come across a bit shallow and... Uh, you know, maybe a little cynical as well. And so for me, it's like, this is who I am. I'm, I have to express. And then the fact that there's a good, boisterous, supportive community in Sweathead, I'm like, who can I help today? How can I, how can I contribute? And it's not that I've got some kind of savior complex, mm -hmm. but I do find there's additional psychological benefits, selfish psychological benefits in focusing on, okay, you know, I had this conversation with someone who's much younger than me. They just lost their job. They're in this situation. I mean, I might as well put something out about that, right? And so I'll go and do it. So it's this, this combination of identity, understanding who I am and that I have a need to express. And then it, also, it does connect with a sense of how I can contribute to this community. I like that. I like how you mentioned if you have the need to express. And a lot of times in these interviews, guests will talk about how you need to have a side hustle, uh, especially for those who are recent grads or students in general in college. Is this true that, you know, you need a side hustle, you need to have something to show to get into the industry to break in that first job and that need yeah, for expression? Maybe, maybe, but do it because it's who you are. Uh, you know, you got to ask yourself if you're not drawn to expressing yet, you think you want a strategy job or a job in a creative department, you know, what's that about? That's a weird riddle, right? Do it. <laughs> Surely you're drawn to being a strategist and hopefully definitely to being an art director or a copywriter or whatever it is, because you need to express, you want to express, but you have to work out how to do that within some kind of industry that pays you because you live in a capitalistic society. So I don't, I side hustle, I think is a bit of a misdirection. I, I would, I would give it a little bit of texture, two key points. One is, if you need to express, if you want to get good at anything, you have to have a practice. You have to have things that you can do that help you get better. And if you're about expression, those things that will get you better could be anything from writing a page once a week or every day or whatever you want to, or trying to do your own writing or 
art projects once a year, whatever the cadence is that's enough for you to bear, that pushes you beyond your limits, that helps you get feedback and also helps you build a social network and a professional network. I think you just need to do that if you're really about expressing. Okay. Okay. Question then. Yeah. If you're, if you want to be a strategist and you need practice, what would you do if you were trying to break in then for that expression purpose? Well, you've got to separate the idea of breaking in from the idea of practice. Because also what I was going to say is that if we focus on breaking in, there's a ton of luck involved. And I do get nervous mm -hmm. that in America, a lot of people do go to college and they study advertising here. I worked in some good places. I was fortunate to work in good places in Australia. I don't think I worked with anyone who studied advertising in university or college ever in over 10 years. People might have studied design or fine art or uh, English or writing, for example. M many in the creative department would have done like a three-month portfolio school situation. The stakes and the world is, is different, generally speaking, but America puts a lot of pressure on kids to kind of specialize at a young age, even though I know many people get that one year of slightly more generalized education when they leave high school. But then there's this real careerism and corporatism from a super young age here where you've got to know your story. You have to prove that you're an important individual. Everyone around you tells you that you're an important individual. You practice this narrative and then you go through high school. And if you're fortunate enough to go to college, you get a huge amount of, of college debt. It's crazy. And then you're like, hang on, now I'm supposed to get a strategy job, aren't I? Isn't that how it works? Not really. I didn't have a full-time strategy role till I was 28. Not that my experience has to generalize to anyone, but I just feel that the expectations that are brewed are honestly to convince people and to hypnotize them into being obedient members of capitalism. And it's not that I'm anti-capitalism. I enjoy it. It's been good to me. It's mm -hmm. just that sometimes we need to see things for what they are. So then the, you get to the thing of breaking in. That's a relative, you know, you could have many different types of answers to that. Luck is really, really important. I do believe that if you want a strategy role at some point that a person looking to hire you, depending on the type of agency and the type of hire because a lot of strategy bosses are different. Not everyone's like mm -hmm. me. I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm a, a small group, but I know people like me. And then there are people who are more formal and they love big words and fancy clothes and fancy cars. And they don't care about, you know, more of a street <laughs> version of strategy, which is what I think I'm interested in. Um, but at, at some point you need to provoke the brain of someone hiring you or someone who knows someone who's going to hire you. So, very difficult to do through a CV, very difficult to do just because you've got a LinkedIn page. So at some point, you're going to need something somewhere to show people how you think and to show that you've got initiative. The challenge with what I just said is that that can get really misunderstood and it can get exaggerated into this thing called a side hustle. You know, mm -hmm. I happened to spend years in my 20s making a rap magazine when the computers were super, I'd be up at 4 a.m. burning a CD-ROM of my files and chances are the first burn wouldn't work, so I'd do it again. It would take two or three hours. I did it because that's what I wanted to do. I'm not, I would never suggest for younger people that that's what you have to do. You don't have to be up all night and burning out every three months or like and falling in a pile like I used to do. But it's not good enough just to have a CV. Most of the portfolios I see out of, out of the college world are... Uh, you know, there's only there's a handful that, that stand out. I've, I've seen hundreds, not thousands. I've seen hundreds. There's a handful okay. that stand out every every time. So how are you going to stand out against everybody else? And for me, you could stand out with a short story, a poem, just a thing that you did. And 
that's going to captivate my brain because there can be a point when you're looking to hire that your eyes gloss over because you're just seeing the same stuff and it looks like someone's coached it and you're looking for an individual. You're looking for someone with a thing to prove and a, and a vibe. Again, there are many corporate agencies. They won't look for any of that. They're just good with the school that you went to, the grades that you got, and that's that. But there is also a smaller group of people who run strategy departments and they want to have a group of maybe misfits, people from different backgrounds, and they want you to poke them in the brain. Hmm. So side hustle, that could be too punitive. It could like be like, ah, oh, because the other thing I was going to say is that, you know, sometimes people can't afford the time or money if there's money involved to put into a side hustle. You might right. be taking care of an, an elderly loved one, or you might be working three jobs, or you've got $70,000 in college debt. And like you, you're just exhausted or you're going through difficult things in life. So that's where I think side hustle by itself is a, it's not wrong. It's just a bit exaggerated and a bit of a red herring. The thing is you, at some point you've got to turn someone's brain on and the traditional tools of CV and possibly portfolio aren't always enough to do it. Love that. So provoke, you said specifically pr provoke the brain of the strategist hiring you or provoke the brain of the person that's going to get you in front of that hiring manager yeah yeah so there's a, a i guess there's this thought that I've, I've played around with so I've, I've been to a bunch of colleges and also advertising portfolio schools and i've done talks and uh, for weekends or just for a night usually i'll get cornered at the end as a bit of an awkward introvert bit of an awkward introvert i'll get cornered by an extrovert who throws what i now call a passion tantrum and they stand there and they're like Oh, I'm so passionate about advertising. I'm so passionate. I'm so passionate. I just want to get a job. I'm so passionate. And uh, there's part of me where I'm like, whoa, I, I get it. This feels really abusive though. Could you back off and allow me to talk to some of the introverts who are like standing behind you? And here's the thing. All I'm going to ask you is, and for, first of all, if like you just want a job, it's a bit of a weird way to approach someone who's just come off the stage. But if you're just going to throw, a, a, if you're going to throw a passion tantrum, someone's going to say, well, what have, what have you done? I was passionate about rap. I made a rap magazine. Yeah, you know, I know it's not easy and I'm not saying that in like a yucky way, but like if you're passionate, you're going to have done something. So it's not good enough to throw a passion tantrum. So that's one concept that I think is useful and that people can pay attention to. The second thing is the idea of intellectual brinkmanship. So when I talk about provoking or poking a, a boss in the brain, intellectual brinkmanship is when you look at someone's work, which again, it could be a haiku. It could be the way they sent an email. It doesn't have to be a full side hustle. It could be a book, mm -hmm. whatever, like it, choose your part of the spectrum. And you're looking at what this person sent you that other people haven't done because they've just filled in the CV with all this robotic language. And you're like, whoa, this person seems a bit scary. I wonder if I could bring them in. And then you have a bit of a game with them. Now, that's what I, I not a game. Like I don't play games with people, but like mm -hmm. I'm curious about the brain. But again, I'm different to a lot of people who are more about dominance and control and top-down hierarchy. I'm more like more interested in flat hierarchy and allowing people to explore the things that make them good and make them excited. And then the third concept when we talk about getting someone else to make a recommendation really comes from something that we know is true that we can point to in research. But there was a there was a book called Obliquity by John Kay, and he was an economist who quit that world because he said, you know, I just spent 20 years making financial models to prove decisions that had already been made. And obliquity is a fancy abstract word for basically the word indirect. So 
as far as he is concerned, the indirect way is the way. Now, you all know that. That's when you hit someone up on LinkedIn and say, hey, can you introduce me to my boss? That's a version of the of the indirect way, but it's better, I believe, to also have something that that person could pass on that doesn't feel mm. so transactional. Like, here's my haiku. <laughs> so there's a few concepts that come into play with the stuff that, that uh, we're talking about. Oh, so let me just, with the being obliquity being indirect then um you say that's better than you know just going straight for the target person do do what you want yeah test it obliquity indirect is very useful and word of mouth tends to be the number one most reason that people buy things yeah especially especially for our for gen z yeah word of mouth I think it's I think it's for everyone. I think it's for the majority of categories. But you know what? I've never seen an infinite breakdown <laughs> of of research about word of mouth and how it influences yeah. every single purchase that's ever been made. But it's up there, right? It's just, it's the same dynamics at play. So, I think with with a lot of things you're saying, I, I, and you've been to a lot of different countries and you've seen how different ad industries work in these different countries. I want to go back to kind of like the US and the approach that they have for students at and you know, your freshman year of college. Um, and I want to tell you about my experience real quick, and maybe how we can break that down. And, you know, approach it from a different cultural thought process or from a way that you would look at it. So I think you, you start off in, in college and that's where I went to school which nothing wrong with that, but the way that they kind of train you and um, carve the path for you is, is it, the end goal is to become a strategist at a mid to large traditional ad agency. And that's kind of like the path that they teach you. You can, if you're real creative and you know that, you know that at an early age and there are um, routes that you can go uh, to specialize in that. But for the most part, if you're not super creative, you're not taking those creative classes with Peter Sheldon, you're going straight into strategy. So is that how most schools that you've traveled across the country operate where they kind of hold your hand into a strategy at a traditional agency? Well, oh, maybe I don't, I don't even know because usually when I go around, I, I'm like, how does this work? Cause I've never really seen it before. And you know, you, you, from what I understand, you can see the advertising class sitting in different kinds of faculty is that right as well like maybe it's in media and communications maybe it's in marketing and business i don't you know i don't i don't really have enough knowledge i've spoken to a lot of people about it but mostly i'm just like hmm honestly is this a good thing to be mm -hmm. specializing in working in advertising at such a young age when you could be studying psychology or philosophy or maybe economics if you're numbers oriented which is what the, your peers in in england would be doing like the the amazing and challenging thing about England is, to be simplistic, a lot of the people at that age that, that get into advertising or that have gotten into advertising a lot, but not all, have gone to Oxford or Cambridge. So like your mm -hmm. Yale or your Harvard, right? And they've studied the you know classic philosophy, etc. And they're often extremely articulate, articulate and they've had to debate. And that's why there's a certain intellectuality around the English advertising world, from what I understand, and also because of many people came from very fancy backgrounds as well but that and that's quite different to america where america as a country is much more about execution than thinking and that i think is historically accurate and written about and i'm not saying that either is better than the other so then when it comes down to advertising in college 
you know, I, everywhere's different. I couldn't break it down. You know, I've not researched it, but I would just hope, you know, first of all, I feel for professors these days. I know there are professors who aren't that good or lecturers who aren't that good, but you know, you've got all this rate my professor stuff. I mean, God, <laughs> yeah. imagine, you know, imagine just having an off class because someone in your family passed away or you were struggling like with a divorce and then you get a bunch of kids, 10 of them just dissing you in public on the internet about how pathetic you are. And, you know, so you, again, education here is about getting a job. It's about certification and it's about fulfilling this capitalistic dream. And, you know, I've spoken to a few professors outside of advertising and they're like, you'd have to do in most places, especially in a private or a, a high paying, a, an expensive college situation, you'd have to do pretty bad to fail. Cause they're like, we just want to move you on and we basically want to take the money. Mm -hmm. But the thing about advertising, I just hope it's, I hope it gets discussed enough. And it does, I believe by the people who I'm close to is like, you're talking about critical thinking, about problem solving, about empathy, about trying to understand the world and history and psychology and, and how it all connects. Cause that's what advertising is. Advertising is not about a portfolio. That's part of it. But if you start there and you're just doing portfolio school, which is important, you're going to miss the subtext and, and the actual richness of it. And chances are you're kind of having a, a factory-like educational experience. Yeah. And I think that's the importance then when you're in this curriculum and, you know, at, whether, you're at, uh, whether you're at Yale or University of Illinois or wherever you're at, some school in the U.S., I, if you're studying advertising, it's kind of known as like kind of like an easy major. There's not a lot of math involved, but those who do, who do really well are those that find out how to apply real world learning. So getting in those clubs, getting in activities where you have a client or you're, you're, you're creating ads for a real person. Those are the people that do well in those group settings. And I think that's like where they, they really get the ball right at where I went to school, um, that they, 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 they preach that early on that the curriculum is one thing, but you know, getting your hands on it is the other more important part. Yeah. 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 That, that rings true. It's interesting. Cause I've, I've, I feel there's a slightly different hiring pool here. And I do think part of it comes down to what you just said, that advertising is seen as an easy major. You know, a lot of the people I know in strategy and, uh, planning in other parts of the world, they didn't do that as a major. Most of them would have gone to university so, or college. So yes, there's a bias there. There are potentially issues there because that is a very fortunate thing to be able to do in most parts of the world throughout history. Uh, however, m you know, many of them would have gone on to do masters or there's a certain intellectuality in them versus this, you know, advertising seems fun and I can get into it. It's easy. So I'll do it and uh, I'll get a job. Right. And it's not to say that that's the American experience, but there is a, short there's a little bit of a vibe uh no it's there that. it's yeah. there it's definitely there for most of your state schools and you you see it in your classes uh you you can tell some people aren't engaged and you know what to each his own right um we don't, we don't need to pick apart everybody's own experience but it shows you know if you don't put that work in and you don't find that real world world experience it you can some of your friends don't make it to where they want to make it or they take different paths that take a little bit longer to figure out where they're going. And that's, you know, it's fine, but you got to put in the work extra on top of your classwork. And I think that's pretty universally known for us students. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you, as you're doing that, I think it is worth keeping the word materialism in mind. There is a certain career materialism 
that comes with American culture. It's everything from all the different titles. And, you know, I've got kids, son starting high school, like all the different labels that people have when they're in one year. And then it's like rising junior, sophomore, freshman. I'm like, why are there all these titles? To me, it comes down to the idea in American culture that you have to be an important individual. And that comes from, from what I understand, religion, that if you weren't an important individual, if you didn't work hard, you weren't getting into heaven. And whether you're religious or not, that idea seems to be very much at the heart of capitalism, uh, which is to say, historically speaking, from what I understand that capitalism and religion were pretty connected through the Puritans and the Calvinists. I'm taking you on a segue there, but um, everyone does have their own journey. It's you know, I, I think it's useful to see this thing, not just as this little business career, but to see it as some kind of art and intellectual pursuit, even though you could get lost in those two concepts as well. As well. The idea of strategy, for example, being art or an intellectual pursuit, because the point of strategy and advertising is to affect the work that ha appears in public and for that to be effective. Right. Did I lose you on uh, Puritanism? I'm Sorry, no, I'm just taking notes and I wasn't sure if you, you cut out there. But, um, you know, so can you recap real quick what the point of strategy is? I want to make that very clear. So the way that I define the word is that it's an informed opinion about how to win. You take information, you form an opinion about it, you are guessing the future. It's a very arrogant thing to do. You don't know the future. A lot of people who do strategy in all kinds of strategy ways and you know management consultants they they think they can predict the future maybe you can try to reduce the the amount of unpredictability of the future but you're still making it up and i think it's really important to acknowledge that and to do so means that you need to appreciate data and facts and information but then you need to take leaps with it lateral thoughts ideas think conceptually possibly in abstract ways while still being uh, able to articulate articulate yourself in simple ways and it, the context of that is winning, typically, right? And to win, you need to make decisions based on your strategy. So strategy helps you make decisions. Those decisions help you allocate your time and money, resources and people. And the point of it in advertising is to help whatever appears in public, usually in public, be more effective. The point is not the thinking by itself. It needs to be able to affect the creative work, the advertising that appears in public. Now, some of us have spent years thinking that our work was going to change businesses internally, and sometimes it does. But I think now advertising is more advertising than it's ever been. And so that's why I think it's okay to say that if you work in advertising, your role in strategy is to help mm -hmm. inform the creative work and make sure that it's more effective than it would have been or might have been without you. Nice. But decisions are a huge part of that. And that's what gets you to to make it effective or not. So, and decisions basically, or I, what I'm going to assume here come from the individual and you probably have to know yourself pretty well to make these decisions. So what type of decision maker are you? What type of strategist are you? How would you characterize your own line of thought? And the easiest way to I, I might need some examples, but yeah, the, 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 what I, the way I increasingly see strategy, it's not, not novel, it's not necessarily novel, but I just see it in a really clear way now is that when you're coming up with strategy, you're typically trying to solve some kind of problem and you do so with a, with maybe a, like a keyword or two, an organizing idea, an idea that everything can come from. And then there are certain actions or behave, actions you can take, behaviors that you can do that fit with your set of values. And these things form this little operating system for you. 
So for example, I didn't really enjoy working in many agencies in New York. Some of them were good. I felt misled, possibly lied to and gaslit in a couple. And so I could state my problem as, you know what? And here's the thing, because sometimes I would teach strategy on the side and I was like, I really enjoy this. I, I enjoy this, but I'm just not enjoying the job. So I could state my problem as something like that, that, you know, after two, almost two decades, pretty much two decades in the industry, I enjoyed the idea of doing strategy. I enjoyed doing it, but I didn't enjoy the experience of it, the job of it, something like that, but my language would be shorter and sharper. So then how have I solved that? Uh, you know, from an identity point of view, I kind of in my head, and I know it sounds pretentious, but I'm, I'm trying to shift into this identity of being an artist. And to talk like that might make people cringe. I get it. It's, these are new words to me to think of myself as an artist. But an artist to me doesn't care about rules. And they spend their lives trying to reveal profound truth. Right? So that's how I'm trying to solve the problem. Like I don't fit in to corporate America where there are a lot of rules. My solution to that, my strategy is to create a life based on my own rules. There's nothing, there's no amazing epiphany there. That was a hard, hard and long learned lesson, but it's where I'm at. And then there are certain beliefs that I return to every single day. Because when you're doing your own thing, you have to work out what you're doing nearly every single day. When you're an employee, you get to outsource a lot of your decisions to somebody else, maybe to a timesheet or to an account manager or a producer, or a project manager, or a boss. You're turning up to meetings and you know that you don't really need to be there, but it's cool. You get to spend half your day in this meeting in a business park in New Jersey. Whereas when you're doing your own thing, you're like, oh gosh, if I don't do anything, no one else is going to do it for me and no one mm -hmm. else really cares. So then I have a series of, of, of principles that I play with and they're things like, I don't want to be beholden to time, you know? So I don't charge time when I'm working with clients and I try to make sure I don't have a lot of friction around my time. So if I'm going to record interviews, my podcast, I try to do them in batches because then I'm fighting with time less. I get a little bit overwhelmed by time and I panic and there can be like this logistical pressure. But that sentence, first of all, from the idea of shifting from being an employee to an artist, pretty straightforward. And then I don't want to be beholden to time. Right. Right. And another thought that comes with these kinds of changes is the word responsibility. When you do your own thing, you have to take responsibility for every single day. So that's another sentence. And so I've got a whole bunch of these sentences that are in my head that I access regularly. And that is my personal, that's my personal strategy. Love it. I love it. I love it. And I, I kind of resonate with, I, I could actually probably use some of these principles, you know, being at home, waiting to start my career um, and doing my own projects. I think those are pretty strong. Um but like for the people out there right now that are listening that might be in an agency role or working remote for a corporation, you know, can you, can they apply this sort of artistic thought to their process, even though they're in a specific role right now? How can they sure. apply this? Yeah, part of it's just insisting that everything you do features some kind of self-expression or expression and or creativity which means you need to know what those words mean. So creativity is combining things that don't usually belong together. That is what an idea is. So an idea isn't the output of creativity. So even if you're not in the creative department, maybe you can't do this all the time. And the problem is that you are often going to be in corporate cultures that don't want you to identify as being creative. They want that to be in a department and then they want everyone to be obedient. 
and ideas mm-hmm. and are necessarily disobedient because they defy what already exists and people don't want to change. They want to keep what exists, generally speaking. So there's a lot of psychology going on with this. A lot of stuff. I don't know if you can say that. There's a lot of psychology. There's a lot of stuff. There are a lot of dynamics that go on um, sure. behind this, right? But yeah, if you're an account manager, if you're a producer, one thing a day that you could do that's a little bit different, that's creative, you could do that. doesn't mean that you're writing the next nike campaign or manifesto but you can still exist as a creative spirit while still being a good business person which is the primary 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 role of an account person right but you know you you said that there are you know you're assuming that there are some boundaries and you know you said psychology within these agencies and corporations but aren't they looking aren't aren't these creative agencies creative agencies for a reason don't they want to push the boundaries i've never worked in one yet but is it kind of controversial in that point where if you want to step outside the box do they push you in and i know it depends on where you're at but what's the general thought in that area yeah so look if we go a little bit deep and dark it just shows me where my brain often goes creativity is chaos as defiance right and let's just pit chaos against order the deep irony about advertising is how conservative it is. And I found it very conservative in America. Little C, mm. I'm not talking politics here, but conservative as in conserving the status quo. If advertising wasn't so conservative, we wouldn't be having so many conversations about diversity and, and inclusion because the industry would have done that. It would have sorted it out, but it didn't. And it held on to how it was and it reinforced its own kind of power. Yeah. If the industry was really creative, there probably wouldn't be a department called creative or they wouldn't get to treat people badly, which they often do. They don't always do, but they often do that. Sure, sure. And other people within that industry or within the other people within an agency would be rewarded, would be heralded for their creativity. And that does happen, but I don't think it happens enough. And there would be creative leadership, not financial leadership, but creative leadership of agencies. So I think there's a deep irony that the creative industries are still quite power and cons- uh, they're still quite power and status quo oriented. I hope it can shift because that means we'll get more interesting brains in the business. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't think agencies are really built to get the most out of their people because they define the word most differently. They're about selling. They have to be profitable. You know, I, I think right. when people are like, we should be really creative and not care so much about profit, that's how you have an agency that doesn't last. So these things are always going to have some kind of arm wrestle. But most agencies don't know how to get most out of you. And the thing is, over time, give it 10 years, you realize that that's not their job. That's your job. And that's why we go back to one of the earlier concepts we were talking about, which is the idea of having your own practice and expressing because you need to practice, not because you have a timesheet to fill in. So these these concepts, you know, they come full circle. They, they, they fit together. Yeah. When, where were you, where was your last agency at? I had a few roles in New York. I don't know if I like to name them all. What no, do you, you don't have to. Next question. When was that? <laughs> when, when was it? Uh, I, had, I was in a couple of bigger places if, like four years ago. So I've been in New York for nine years. Five years of those were in other people's companies. Sure. And you started off with your own magazine and then you broke into strategy. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I was in a digital agency at 19 and I would stay back and make uh, very bad and simple hip hop 
website and then magazine. I taught myself how to use the software and I was by day, I was a digital producer in between being at college and I was helping to run the Levi's website and posting music interviews that I would do for that website. That was kind of the early days of branded content. We didn't use those two words together like that back then. And through my twenties, I was in like digital development oriented shops working on I managed all the Audi digital work in Australia because we just did it out of this small like website making company. I've worked at Tribal DDB. I've slept on the floor there many times under desks while also working on my magazine at night. And then when I was 28, I, I was freelancing just after I had around the time I, we had our first child. And I decided that I didn't want to be a producer anymore. I wanted to be a strategist. And there just weren't that many strategy roles. And they didn't really exist as specialist roles within the digital agency world, where I spent my first nine or so years. And then Leo Burnett offered me a role as an account planner. That's what we called it. Mm -hmm. And so that's Leo Burnett in Sydney, which is really prolific. They do great work. Uh, and they have generally a respect for their planning department, which is more than many agencies. Generally speaking, <laughs> it's always sure, difficult. Sure. Uh, but that's, you know, 28, that's when I moved into more of a, an account planning role. But I was an experiment. The experiment was, could you take someone who's made a rap magazine, done radio, created things for 10 years, and who still was going to be doing user experience and information architecture, which I've done for everyone from like banks to Kimberly Clark brands. And then could you add some brand planning techniques to that person? What does that look like? So at Leo Burnett, uh, let's say it was a 50-50 split between digital and brand. And then after that, uh, was at McCann in Sydney. We had a small team there and then uh, worked at uh, Saatchi in New York and Big Spaceship down in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just trying to, I wanted to do good work at scale. And, I, you know, Australia is pretty flat hierarchically. I know some people can find it a bit conservative. I find it quite irreverent. And I was like, oh, I just want to be able to do that kind of cheeky work at scale in, in America. And I found America, I probably had four or five years of culture shock yeah. uh, really i just found it really it's very talkative first of all and very hierarchical and very self-aware of who's of of importance and i was like you know i don't know how to communicate in this because i just want to do i just want to do good work which is a silly thing you can say to yourself uh it's a bit of a naive thing really whereas other people are really good at working out the the politics of what's going on and moving through it Right, I, was a bit, right. I was a bit spoiled by the fact that I'd done my own thing. And so my culture shock was also moving into bigger places, having done my own thing. If I wanted to publish an issue, release a CD, put up posters for an event I was doing, I'd just go do it. And then working in agency, that also, agencies, that all slows down. And then in the US, you know, you, you fly, I was flying a lot in the US, all over the place. And you're hoping that you can get some good work through, but people have or had different ideas of what advertising was. And then you're in these meetings with 50 people. You could be in Minneapolis one week, rural Eastern France another week, and none of it's leading to better work. And so, yeah, you can try to enjoy it, but that's not what I was here for. So I would get quite frustrated. Was it ever in like intimidating for you going into those big rooms with like 50 people and flying off, you know, with that different, that culture shock? Yeah, at times. Uh, yeah, it sort of balance this weird introversion. And I sort of justify my introversion by having a bit of an outsider mentality. So when I go into rooms, even when I was young, I never felt like I fitted in anywhere, honestly. And I know people struggle with that these days because I'm increasingly becoming like a middle-aged white man and people will use those words every now and then to point out the fact that I am a middle-aged, increasingly middle-aged white man. But growing up, you know, divorced family, I was by myself a lot, younger sister, 
between homes. And so I've never, re- I've never really fitted in anywhere. I had friends from different groups. Um, and so I kind of ca- have carried that with me. So on the one hand, I'd feel intimidated and, and odd. But on the other hand, I was just like, I don't know, it's just normal. <laughs> I always feel odd. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Uh, I definitely, definitely, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel when I get into the, to a, a meeting or anything like that. I feel it's scary when, you know, having a couple internships kind of gets you ready you know you're st- but when you're at the agency or you're at your company and you are an intern it's kind of like everybody's very aware of that they hold your hand they're like oh good job you share and they clap for you but like it's gonna be kind of a transition uh having an entry-level role and i think a lot of people are gonna be facing that soon whenever they start their jobs yeah it, it's hard to give any quick advice to that i just think and this is just because what i this is what i like it's what i respond to Try to develop your own opinions. Never be afraid to have your own opinion. You might need to watch how you express it. And that is also something that an Australian with 10 to 20 years experience has to learn as well. That uh, opinions matter more in hierarchy in America (laughs) than in other places around the world. You know, some places are really flat. So in Scandinavia, for example, is a really famous agency uh, that has this thing called is it open table or open floor. And, And also the agency, no one has job titles. So you could be, you could be the boss, but you're not. And they would they come and present work on the floor. They get around and they talk about it, and then they go and do their stuff. But there's no explicit hierarchy. There's, there's often implicit hierarchy in, in groups. So that's also a bit of a thing you've got to navigate. Whereas America's super hierarchy conscious, very top down. Uh, and so I think it's important just to keep to keep practicing whatever it is that's drawn you to this thing. And I hope it's more than money. But if you're interested in writing or learning about people, researching, keep practicing that stuff on the side where you can or on the day job, form opinions, write little memos, whatever you're doing, write. You need to be able to practice writing and give yourself limited space. How, how can I get my thoughts together in half a page or one page, but double spaced and, and then mm-hmm. get the thoughts down and make them better. And that's it. And you do that for a few years, chip away at your ability to see patterns and express them. Even if you have not shared them with many people, you will improve. You do need feedback from some kind of mentor, which sort of fulfills the concept called deliberate practice, which is how sports players get good at stuff. They have concepts broken down into small parts. They practice them really deliberately and like it's a live game. And then they get feedback from a, a you know, a coach, right? Right. So there, there are certain principles that you can apply to this. Um, and then I think realize that some people who are drawn to power are not going to be empaths and there will be bad behavior out there. From what I understand, I hope this is correct, relative to the average population in leadership roles, there are something like four times more sociopaths, right? So companies are these weird entities that have got the rights of humans. I'm going to lose you on this, aren't I? They've got the rights of humans. We sort of turn them into humans, but they have more rights than humans. And then they hire people who aren't very human to run them often. It's not a diss about every single person who runs a company at, sure, at all. Sure, but it's just to be aware that there are certain tendencies within companies, right? Uh, and then the people who aren't like that, some people are great. A lot of people are just trying to work it out. And you could be in a room with someone who's super powerful, important, and their marriage is falling apart, their father's dying, and you know, people are just trying to hold on. So as long as you go into it trying to improve, trying to be useful, uh, there's a certain naivety and arrogance of youth that I think is is good. As long as you don't throw it in people's faces, then um, you, you can have a good career. The, the one other thing about the career is it's not going to be as long as your peers in other industries, statistically right. speaking. So that's something that I that that's another reason 
to stay active with your own expression because you might hit your mid thirties, definitely mid forties and the job's gone. What are you going to be then? Cause you're not going to know yourself because your identity was your job, especially in America, right? Where the, the job and the career that is your identity. That's why you talk about it all the time. Number of times I'm in cafes around here and people are talking about their bosses and their jobs. And I'm like, Whoa, what is this? Well, what about not, not so much the name of the job is your identity, but what I was, I always kind of subscribe to the thought that the role that you had was kind of like your career path. Like if you go all in on strategy, let's say you can be known as a strategist and then the names of the agencies are just resumes, resume yeah. builders. Yep. What I've realized in the past year or two, this is my hypothesis. I have no idea if it's original or not. It works for me is that it's not even the role. It's your verbs. What do you mean by that? What you've done? What you do. Yeah. So this is one of the things when I'm talking to people, I ask them a few questions when they're trying to work their lives out. The first one is, do you identify more as an artist, an entrepreneur or employee? And I define those words in a particular way to force a decision from them because it's a thought experiment. And then eventually we talk about the verbs. What do they like to do in life? For me, I like to write. Now, if I'd written that down on a piece of paper, the word write or writing, the word teach, listening, deep, awkward conversations. If I'd written words like that on a piece of paper at your age, I would have thought, nah, that's bullshit. That's ridiculous. I got to be more professional or more formal. Or honestly, back then I was like, screw the systems. I'm, I hate systems. <laughs> Why do I have to be someone who fits into someone else's nonsense system? That was probably more of what's, what's going on, on in my head. Nice. Right? But now I wake up and I'm like, okay, trying to live some kind of artist life. And I know it's pretentious, maybe. What do I do? Well, I need to express, I need to write, I need to draw. So go do it. Okay, cool. So they're well, super, they're super powerful. That's part of my operating system too. Those well, does, well, that doesn't that change every couple of years, or you know, as your life changes, like the way you want, and your, those verbs are not constant, like you said when you were younger. Well, the verbs are constant. They're things that I used to do back then. I can see, and maybe it's like a selection bias, and that I'm forcing myself to see the connection. But I can see okay. the connection. I've always written. I've written since I was four years old. Uh, like, you know, for the sake of writing journals and postcards and letters and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I know a lot of people have, but not everyone. So no, what I'm, what I, what I believe is that there are certain personality traits that stay in your orbit and certain verbs, certain actions that connect to those personality traits that stay in your orbit. And then it's a 10, 20 year journey as an adult into your thirties and forties to work out what actually matters. And then through crisis after crisis, you have no choice but to focus on those things. And as you focus on those things, you're gonna feel like you're giving everything away, that you failed. And then if you persist and you keep going, chances are you can come out of it in a beautifully candid, honest way because you've had your head in the fire for 20 years and that wasn't working. That's basically my version of um, what you know, screenwriters would call a hero's journey, right? And that's like the phoenix rising again kind of scene. But I, I believe what I just said is what I feel. And having spent a little bit of time around philosophy and psychology, I think it's real that that journey is pretty common to people, especially people who feel that they're creative. There's no shortcut. There are never any shortcuts. Young people always want the shortcut. Like if, if you want to get good at writing a brief, shortcut could be I'll give you a creative brief template. Doesn't mean you can write. Right. Doesn't doesn't mean you understand humans. Well, no, to mean figure you understand out history. To figure out, you know, bare bones what you like to do. I mean, are there exercises or, you know, things that we can do to really 
hone in on what we love. Yeah, I wouldn't call them shortcuts though. I, I think stream of consciousness writing is a, is basically a, a verb a written version of talk therapy. And in the startup world, you see a lot of people talking about morning pages, which was popularized in a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, from what I understand. And, and a lot of that just mimics talk therapy, but you're writing on a piece of paper and you're just letting it flow often in the mornings. And you might aim mm -hmm. to fill one page or three pages and you could just write whatever you think. And then over time, you could give yourself little writing exercises. Uh, an example that I sometimes do that I was doing when I was writing a book. I don't know if you've ever written a book. It's quite intimidating, but I enjoyed it and want to do it again. But I, I, there was this one day where I sat down and uh, I was trying to answer the question, what am I doing here? And that question blurted into my mind and I sat down and just wrote because I knew I needed, excuse me, I just burped because I had some lunch. You can edit that out. Uh, <laughs> but like I, I knew that I wanted to finish this book and I knew that I want to be there for other people who identify as being empathic, introspective, creative souls. And I'm happening to do that through this sweathead community right now. And so I would, I would write and it would ground me. So writing morning pages, that's not a shortcut. Nice. Uh, you know, plenty of people be careful with this stuff. Some people trip and they take ayahuasca and they hope for some kind of epiphany. And sometimes it happens. It depends on how you do it. Depends on your set and setting. I've not done those things. I've just read the research. Uh, but it's a process and it's usually through crisis and at your age you are and i'm i don't know like maybe i'm just there, there are ideas that have stuck with me from other people that feel true but at that age you are sort of you're still forming your identity and you're forming more of an independent identity away from being dependent on the family and part of that is about shedding the social persona that your family told you was okay some of which is just going to be innate in you. You know, like I can see a few generations of men in my family now that are relatively quiet and introspective. You know, I don't think that's because they all happen to be uh, taught by their family that they shouldn't be loud. I, there's probably a bit of a trait there that, that's inherited. Uh, but the 20s is largely, you know, a lot of people are going to try to establish their like big man or big woman on campus vibe right now, get that job. And then a few of you within two or three years, you'll know someone who's had a successful sale of a startup who's a, is a really unnecessarily young CMO of a well-known company and you're going to resent it and you'll be like why aren't I like that and you're going to carry that energy around I've seen it in meetings I've done you know I've managed teams and some of the young people were like I've got a friend who's a CMO at 25 and I'm like what's that got to do with our conversation but there's a certain resentment that that boils with them uh, because they're constantly comparing themselves to people and they're going to do that because everyone's infatuated with social media so it's just a process process might be a wrong, long word. process might be a wrong word but it's a matter of learning how to pay attention to yourself while knowing that sometimes it's crisis after crisis trying to do the same thing realizing your coping mechanisms the things that you were trying to do maybe the things that kept you safe when you were young at some point they stop working and then you're like oh now what am i going to do yeah there's no shortcut for that love it love it well, I appreciate it. Um, I think that this is fantastic advice. And I just love that different cultural perspective on our American culture, you know, being so self-aware of our roles and our in the system and how everything plays out. It's so true. And it's something that I never really addressed. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I don't I don't, I don't mean to put it down like I, I it's amazing in Australia growing up, you would see news, for example, or with the late shows. You might see someone like a child being interviewed on television in America and they were just so able to talk 
And Aussies, we're like a bit embarrassed. We've got a bit of a put down culture. And so Aussies would be like, oh, yeah, nah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you know, and there's like a six-year-old American. And you're like, wow, they can really talk over there, can't they? But then when you move here and you don't have a script for the 20th introduction you have to do in a meeting, you're like, oh, I've really got to sort this out. But I'm so embarrassed that I have to do it in the way that everyone else does it. And then, you know, I've done a lot of events in America. And what I love is there's a, an openness to that interaction being on a stage. And I could ask someone to introduce themselves to someone next to them or participate in some kind of group exercise. And there's way less cynicism around that stuff in America than many other places I've been. And I appreciate that. I love it. Uh, it's just that when you're in it and you're trying to survive and justify you, your presence in a meeting, you're like, oh, I don't. Am I supposed to talk now? Because I do not know what people are talking about. And it seems like they're talking about stuff that doesn't matter. And that's, you know, I've, I've struggled with that. Yeah. yeah. America America's an interesting place. I think we all have like our own internal like scripts on how we introduce ourselves and who we are and like our own little pitch or everybody's got their own little elevator pitch ready to go. What's yours? I don't know. <laughs> I, had I had one. Uh, well, now that I had one in college, so like for my interviews, um, but now that I'm podcasting, I'm talking to all these different people and I'm exploring different options. I, I know I like to talk to people and that's like a big part of my own story, but so you don't know different op options. That means you're conscious of the need to be able to introduce yourself. Well, aren't you? What's that? That, so when you say that you're exploring options, you're partly serious, right? With that. And, and that means that you're conscious of the need to have a self-introduction script. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think and I was one. I was not at your age. Well, yeah, but now nobody wants to hear a perfect one. Nobody yeah. wants to be like, "Oh, you I'll, actually practiced it." It's like I'll, I'll give you one that'll get a job. Let's say you're being interviewed in a group. Are you ready for it? Yep. My name's Gino. This is what I sound like with an Australian accent. Okay, so you've got to you've got to copy that accent that I just did, and that's it. Drop the mic. You'll get the job. Will that work? Yeah, you got to go. See, I went a little broader. I don't know if you heard it there. I went 15% <laughs> broader yeah. with the Aussie accent. So just drop it in. They can't have heard you talking before because Gino is just the perfect Aussie nickname. Gino, right. mate. <laughs> I appreciate uh, Good eye, mate. No, what's that? What's that? G'day. G'day, mate. G'day, G'day mate. mate. Yeah, the, th the, the thing I know you got to go, but the thing with the Australian accent is that, you, well, this is the way of Australian, the, the way that Australians talk is we don't use our facial muscles very much. It's as if we're a little bit drunk or might have been drunk for 100 years and there are a lot of flies trying to get into our mouths. And so we uh -huh. shorten everything and slur a lot of stuff. And, you know, that's, that's the trick. That's good. That's the trick, that's man. That'll get you a job at Droga 5. No, don't do that. They would hate it that. I was just, as you were saying that, I was thinking about Droga 5 the whole time. <laughs> no. no. Cool. They'd be like, what's this about? Cool. So, Mark, you, I just wanted to quickly touch upon, you know, the book that you just put out, Strategy is Your Words. You just, that was recent, right? That was in May? Yeah, I released it, oh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. So, I finally arrived in, in uh, the USA in... July and okay. it's gently shipping within the USA. I've not done any big launch for it yet. I just needed to test the shipping and everything. Okay. Well, this is going to be your big launch then with our millions of listeners, but it's uh, good. That's um, good who's so. it for this book? I know you, you've got, a, you got the podcast, you've got your own um, business going on, but for this book, is it for a specific audience or what's the age range? What do you, what are the demographics for this book? Uh, look, look, big part of this book is for me. 
you know, it's me processing moving into my 40s. It's me trying to make sense of the past nine years in America, although I started on it seven years ago and some of that was using content from much before as well. And so I think if you're going to do art, I do keep people in mind. I have a lot of conversations with people in advertising, everyday messages and phone calls and all sorts of things. And so when I write, they're, they're in my mind very much. But that's at the paragraph level. But as a body of work, it's for me. It's, you know, it's my art. I want to express myself through it. It's not a business book. And I don't like the idea that a business book is, a, is the new business card. I refuse to accept that. This sure. is my art. It's weird. And it's fun. And some people will enjoy it. But the, the people who will get it the most are people who are capable and interested in empathy and introspection and creativity. They don't see those things as deformities or weaknesses. The people who will struggle with it are people who are very concrete oriented and important people. And, you know, there will be people who've done MBAs, for example, who will totally get the book, but it's not really for that kind of real buttoned up formal hierarchical person. It's for someone who's a little bit messy and might've been told throughout their lives that that messiness is them being broken. Whereas what I believe is that if you pay attention to it and stop judging it, there's probably some pretty good treasure in that mess. Wonderful. It's a quote you, and I hope it's right, but here's how to get good at strategy. Words, start with words, continue with words, and finish with words. You have one job, get good at words. Word. Word. That's what I believe. It's what I believe. And it's a really obvious thing to point out. It's, it's something that I point out and people will and probably have made fun of. It's like, duh. But then why are so many strategy presentations so long and difficult to understand? Why do so many creative departments not want to work with strategy, strategists or account planners? Why do so many clients mistrust strategists in their agencies or in their in-house teams? And it's not that it stops and starts with, well, hang on. It's not, I think words is a big part of it. You know, if you're using jargon and hiding behind big words and a lot of words, it's just not, it's not a good customer experience, is it? Not a good customer experience of strategy. And so this, this book is just a, a bit of a primal scream to get people to try to focus on what really matters. And there's a whole bunch of practical techniques mixed with uh, absurdist philosophy as well. Perfect. Well, I appreciate you sharing and I appreciate all the advice. Um, if students or listeners of this podcast want to reach out or learn more about you and your all of your endeavors, how should they go about that? Uh, you can find me at Mark Pollard on Twitter and Instagram, or you can find my book, 100 Strategy Classes, and the Facebook community at Sweathead or Sweathead.com, www.sweathead.com. Amazing. And I'll put all links to that in the bio. So that's all I got for you today. Thank you again, Mark. All right, Gino, good luck with it. It's a monster of a career. It won't last as long as we would hope, but within it, you're learning critical thinking skills. You're surrounded by other people trying to express themselves in the world and trying to fit into the world. And you can learn so much about humanity. It's not easy. You'll probably work too many hours at times and you need to think about whether that's worth it, but it is a very interesting and career with quite a lot of privilege to it. So best wishes to you and uh, all your friends who are trying to get into it. May you survive it and do more than just surviving it. I appreciate it. guys so much for listening to the entire episode of the breaking and entering podcast this one was especially 
um, amazing with Mark Pillard. I was super excited to have him, super nervous, as you can tell. So I apologize about me being so awkward, but that's just how it is sometimes. Um, I gotta give a shout out to my team. Can't do it without you guys. We got Mikey Malarkey, audio technician. We got Buchan Jung, our graphic designer, who's just killing it. Everybody's killing it, but um, Audrey Nussbaum, our co-host. Uh, we got Kyle Moore, who's our strategist all the way out in Texas. You're my guy. And lastly, we got a new guy, Jacob Rodino, who's representing the student group that's going to be helping us out soon. He's a researcher. Thank you to all of you. Can't do it without you. Love you guys. Next week, not sure what we have, but keep in touch because these guests are getting awesome. Bye-bye.